My next guest, Hilton Jones, a left-below-the-knee amputee, defines the idea of perseverance. His journey following an unfortunate accident is truly inspiring and brings to light the idea that amputees can thrive. Hilton is an adaptive athlete who continues to lift up many lives that he touches. It is my pleasure to introduce Hilton Jones. Hilton, how you doing? Good, Rick. Nice to, nice to see you. Oh, it's great to see you too, my man. Um, I'm so excited to have you here today. I know we've, we, you and I uh, both have been on a little bit of a journey in terms of connecting. Um, I think I reached out to you quite a while back, and um, I so appreciate you hanging in there and wanting to participate in the podcast and share your story, which I, I personally find to be extraordinary, what you've been through and, you know, all the different elements of just what has brought you here today. Um, you know, being a high-functioning amputee certainly doesn't happen overnight, as you're well aware. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really, really develop a lot of just intense curiosity about people like yourselves because, um, you know, when I started my journey six years ago, so much of my inspiration and so much of my guidance came from trying to emulate people like yourself in my own little way, because all amputees are different and we all have a certain capacity in terms of our fitness level or what we can do, what we can't do. Um, so coming to grips with that certainly is part of the process, but then to use people like yourself, like other adaptive athletes that really, really get people kind of supercharged, right? Because if I'm an amputee that's, let's say, wheelchair bound, and I just want so badly to walk across the room in my prosthesis, that's my goal. That's my goal right now. I'm going to walk, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I, when I can tap into the energy of a Hilton Jones, suddenly I find a way to do it because I see someone like yourself and I say, Anything is possible. Anything is possible. Look what this man is doing. Look what he's capable of doing in a prosthesis. Anything is possible, right? I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, the gravity of that influence that you have on people's lives, or is that just something you don't really even think about? You're just kind of like on your own personal journey. How do you feel about that? I, I think it makes me very happy to hear um, because it was the same for me. I, I used... Uh, Instagram, uh, mainly Instagram, actually, to, to find other people with the same kind of disability and then yeah. find out what was possible um, because there was nothing really around me that gave me uh, any information about that. So it was uh, really social media that let me know what, what I could do. So if I can help other people find that as well, then that makes me really happy. And isn't that such a cool part of the journey when you think about it? Because there you were, you're, you're, you know, you're swiping through Instagram. You know, you're, you're like, Oh, look what this guy's doing. Oh, mm. look what that guy's, that guy's doing. And then, you know, fast forward period of time, here you are today. And this is going to be heard by tons of people, tons of followers, and people are going to say, this is the kind of energy that I need to enhance my experience and to move forward in my life. I, you know, 
I really appreciate you sharing so much detail um, because we've had some email uh, conversations back and forth about your life and the beginnings of your journey. Um, I so appreciate that you're willing to share all of that, which which makes you a perfect fit um, for what we're doing with this podcast. You know, I want to talk about your childhood and some of the struggles that you experienced um, as a young person uh, growing up. And I think one of the things that struck me initially was that you you were battling um, an e- uh, eating disorder. Yeah, and, exactly. you know, that is something that really puts you in a vulnerable space, let's call it, to be talking about that. Um, can you describe that to the audience? Uh, you know, what, what that experience was like for you growing up? Um, I think the, the, the main thing was that like, it just seemed like such a, uh, an easy way of losing weight to, to, um, to basically throw up, uh, everything yeah. that I'd eaten because it was a, it was a comfort eating that I, that I had a problem with. Um, and so all of the problems seemed to feel a bit better with uh, my favorite snacks or whatever. And then I'd feel sure. guilty about that. And then it just seemed like the, the obvious answer. And, yeah. um, and then it just becomes part of uh, your little like secret uh, friend that helps you get through uh, different days, feel better about yourself. But uh, obviously incredibly unhealthy. And um, yeah, that's so many better ways of dealing with it. But uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, you know, it's, it, it takes a lot of strength to be able to talk about it in that way to, to sort of own it, as they say, you know, like owning that experience and, and developing from it, becoming a better person, a healthier person from it. And I think when you talk about eating disorders, it, it's something that is, is very much, you know, prevalent um, in the world. Certainly, um, you know, very prevalent in the United States, um, specifically, when you look at a lot of the mortality rates, you know, related to um, eating disorders, obesity, and then when you look at the psychological challenges that things like bulimia can create, uh, you know, to look at someone like yourself, given the space that you're in now, someone knows that there is a path out of that situation. And how do you, how would you say you came to grips with that and then sort of changed that part about you? Like what was what was the catalyst that made you realize like I don't need this in my life? Right. Yeah. Um it was a, a few different things at the same time. But uh I think the the main thing that made me realize it was when I went traveling. Uh I went to India and I was quite young at the time, but um, I was very, very nervous about going. And I, I was on a very small budget as well. I didn't have so much money. And um, out of necessity, I couldn't eat very much. And uh, a lot of the food that I had was very basic food. And my relationship to food changed because of necessity, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I realized the value of food and keeping it inside myself as well. And also <laughs> yeah. I had this... Uh, this, I don't want this, to be hungry anymore. <laughs> no, exactly. And then also uh, in India as well, some of the places I was traveling to be surrounded by people that really uh, needed the food. And I, uh, there was a kind of guilt about uh, uh, having the money to be able to eat and then throw it back up again to make myself feel better. And I, I think that that kind of um, 
maybe it was a bit of a slap in the face was like, mm -hmm. okay, uh, you, you have so few problems like, uh, compared to some of the people that you're, you're meeting. Uh, so I think it just put things in balance in some sort of way, the, the traveling itself. Yeah. And to be experiencing, you know, right in front of you in real time, that level of poverty mm. and people are literally, you know, starving. I mean, they're struggling to feed themselves and to know that, um, nutrition, food, it's a gift. It's exactly. truly, a, it's truly a gift and to squander that gift just to sort of comfort yourself, like you mm. describe it. Um, I would, I would think, uh, would have been just that psychological journey of, oh my gosh, like, what am I doing? Mm. I mean, these, you know, f you know, food is, is, is this essential part of who we are and to sort of mess around with that. Um, so no, I, I, I think it shows a tremendous amount of strength to be able to talk about that. And, you know, as you went into your teen years, I mean, what was that like? I mean, were you the kind of person that was, um, you know, indulging in the things that young people indulge in? Were you, were you one of those people that was kind of out partying, doing that kind of stuff? I mean, what was that like? Uh, yeah, uh, it was um, a, a big shift as well. My, my, my father died when I was 17. Oh, and uh, so Sorry. up, at, well, yeah, a long time ago now, but thank you. Um, he, um, he was very strict and I had to be uh, in the scholarship stream at school. I had to study Latin. I had to come in and uh, do extra French on the holidays and I wasn't allowed to do any sport. Uh, it, it was a very, very strict upbringing. Hmm. So I think after he died, I went through a complete rebellion of uh, doing everything that I wasn't allowed to do before. And uh, I think that's kind of natural, but uh, it went too far the other way, of course. And so a little bit with um, going out to, to raves and uh, a little bit of experimenting with like party drugs and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, because I wanted oblivion. I didn't want to think about anything. I didn't, uh, I wasn't ready to deal with uh, losing my father and then deciding what to do next with my life. So yes, that was uh uh, a little bit of a crazy time. So that was another reason why I went to India was to, uh, to find a different direction. Hey, amputees, I'd like to take a moment to introduce everyone to the liner wand. We all know how bacteria and odor can be a major issue with prosthetic liners, and the liner wand is the solution. Did you know that if you're using soap and water, you may be making the problem worse? The Liner Wand uses a patented formula that deletes all bacteria and smells for two weeks. The Liner Wand is available as an affordable subscription or individually, and it always ships for free. To learn more, visit thelinerwand.com. That's T-H-E-L-I-N-E-R-W-A-N-D.com. Use code 211, that's 211, and receive 50% off your first subscription today. You can also use the code RICK, R-I-C-K, and receive 25% off your cleanser subscription as well. That's thelinerwand.com. Why I went to India was to, uh, to find a different direction. Yeah, and when I think about, you know, your childhood experience, you know, going through those things, losing a parent at a young age, and then sort of trying to navigate it all, um, and you know, keeping in mind, we, we all, we all mature at a different rate. 
you know, I myself <laughs> wasn't very mature when I was a younger guy. So being sort of susceptible to a lot of that stimulus or, you know, you're trying to sort of manage your feelings, um, you know, about your dad or conversely is suddenly being given all of this new freedom because now you're, you're sort of like, you know, you're, you're out of the cage, so to speak. And now it's time to, you know, really live and, and to swing in that other direction too far, I, I would think is, like you said, uh, a pretty natural thing. And, you know, wanting to travel, um, I, th I think is a big part of your story. Hmm. You, you seem to have what I would describe as sort of this kind of explorer type disposition. You're, you're this, this, this traveler, this person that wants to see other things and, you know, always thinking about, well, what's my next, you know, place that I'm going to go or how am I going to save the money, you know, in order to go to those places. Mm -hmm. And do you see the world sort of through that lens of, are you just one of those people that wants to have those experiences? What motivates you to say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to travel. Like I, I want to go to this place. Where, where does that come from? Do you think? I think um, there's maybe two parts to it, which is um, we we moved a lot when I was young, uh, so we didn't have one home. Uh, we were I was born in Scotland and I lived there until I was five, and then we moved to England uh, to about three or four different places as I was growing up, um, and so I never really felt like I I, I really settled in one way, mm -hmm. and also growing up, my my mum was born in India actually, um, oh, okay. and so there were a lot of uh, uh, Indian souvenirs and that sort of thing around the house. And um, my grandmother would, she could still speak uh, Gujarati, I think. Uh, so yeah, there were, there were a lot of influences that were pushing me towards India, I think. Uh, it was just without me really thinking about it. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, you saw it as like almost like part of your heritage, you know? Yeah. But I think I, I definitely had heard, you know, the, uh, the classic, oh, you, you, you have to go traveling to find yourself. And I was someone that definitely felt like I, I needed to find myself um, away from my family and away from everything else. And uh, yeah, I, I think that that was definitely the beginning of it. But then as soon as I started, I think that it became addictive in itself, the, mm -hmm. the traveling. And um, yeah, it was such an amazing experience. And I know so many people that live in that sort of spirit of adventure. You know, they can't really stay in one place too long. And they certainly have homes, you know, kind of like a home base kind of concept, but they have this need to, to venture, to get out mm. and, and to see the world and to experience different culture and different, you know, food and, you know, really, really get a flavor for, you know, w what's out there. And I really admire that. And, you know, transitioning to your accident, I think is probably what I want to talk about. I mean, it, you losing a limb and going through this rickshaw accident, pretty extraordinary situation. Um, and if you're comfortable, I, I'd like to know in a little more detail, you know, how this happened. Because, um, you know, so many of the amputees I talk to, you know, go, go through, you know, situations that are, are, are more kind of like developed through like circulatory issues 
whereas you know you were involved you know in a in a, in a very tragic kind of chance um, occurrence. So um, I'll let you kind of explain what happened to you. Yeah, of course. Um, so I was it was my second trip to India. Uh, I'd, I'd just been home and I decided I was going to be a travel photographer. That was that was my my dream and my plan. So I bought all the gear, saved up some money, and it was right at the beginning of the journey. And I bumped into some friends from from the UK actually, who were coincidentally in uh, in Delhi, and we travelled to Agra together. And uh, it was very late in the middle of the night. Uh, we were in a tuk tuk, like an auto rickshaw, which uh, so a motor, motorcycle taxi basically. Oh, okay. Um, I was in the front with the driver, and my two friends were in the back with all the bags, the, the backpacks and everything. And um, yeah, we were driving around looking for a hotel, I believe, at the, the time. But maybe two o'clock in the morning, um, so hardly any traffic, but then uh, this truck came from behind uh, very, very fast and then just ran straight over us. Uh, and it never stopped. Somehow I went underneath the truck and it just kept going. Um, and my friends, they stayed inside the, the rickshaw uh, and the driver also, but that was pretty crushed. Uh, so one friend, uh, her glasses smashed in her eyes. I think she broke her nose, uh, but she was pretty much intact. Uh, one other girl, she lost her big toe um, and the mm. toe next to it um, because the, the metal just crumbled and, and everything. But uh, apart from that, she was okay. Um, and actually the driver came off probably worse of everyone because he lost his rickshaw and he had uh, uh, maybe, a, maybe a story for another time. But uh, yes, I got dragged along and under the truck and then eventually I think my toes came off in the, in the accident and uh, I was left in the middle of the road. But it was far enough that my friends had to flag down a, another car to come and pick me up um, and then take me to the nearest hospital, which was uh, yeah, a little bit of a, a shocking hospital, but it was uh, you know, the best that they, they had the facilities, but yeah. So what you're, you're dirty. right. So you're, you're getting dragged along. Are, are you conscious in, in that? Like, you know, what's happening when you're, when you're going through the actual accident itself. Right. I, I have more like flashes. Okay. Of it. I, rem I remember sounds and, uh, definitely, uh, almost like bumps, like almost like little flashes, but I mean, how, how accurate that memory is now is uh, is another thing. But I, I definitely remember being left in the in the middle of the road. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember getting to the hospital, but I remember the doctor slapping me in the face, uh, trying to get me to calm down because I was delirious and I didn't understand what had happened to me. Uh, wow. And uh, yeah, so that was strange. In fact, actually, I uh, I he, he kept slapping me in the face. I said, "Slap me in the face one more time, I'm going to slap you back." And uh, I didn't realize that my hand was completely broken. So it was like a, a wet fish probably across his face. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I think he tried not to laugh more than anything else. Yeah. But uh, yeah, then I had an inkling that something was, was very wrong. But obviously, I, I, the, the shock was so much I hadn't, I wasn't aware of the pain or anything like that. that it's that interesting point. what kicks in in the human body when it, when it goes through that type of trauma. Because you were you were in this 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 jarring you know collision, um, which is certainly life threatening, but it would it would appear because I I do talk to some you know some amputees that have gone through motorcycle accidents and lost a limb, and they will describe it in a similar way, where they don't 
really remember, let's say in detail, sort of like what you're describing as they see flashes, mm -hmm. but never really knew what had happened or the extent of their injuries until much later. And I, I don't know if, if, you know, and I'm sure we could, we could have a medical professional explain to us, you know, what the brain, what the body does when it goes through something like that. And I'm sure it has to do with our own defense systems, um, you know, just to kind of protect us from, you know, this horrible, you know, oh my gosh, moment yeah. uh, when things are happening in that regard. And you said the conditions of that I know you got transferred at some point, but the conditions of that initial hospital, what what was that like? Because I, I think you've sent me some photos. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I kind of was shocked. Yeah. I mean, to be quite honest, I thought, oh, no, like this mm. doesn't look good to me. So so describe that. Uh, I remember that, that as the doctors were walking around the, the operating table, um, I, th I guess when they were doing the amputation, I remember this uh, crunch of, of glass on the floor. So I think that that was maybe the, the, the vials of morphine that uh, they were just discarded on the floor afterwards and then walked over. Mm. There was, uh, uh, I mean, there was, uh, apparently there was dogs walking through the ward. Um, it was, it was definitely very sanitary. Very, yeah, there was, um, but I mean, it was the best that they had for anyone. It wasn't anything um, that you know they were doing because I was a tourist or anything. It was the the best they could do. And um, yeah, I was not really aware of um, too much about it. But yeah, when I look back on the photos, it's uh, it's insane. Like uh, the, there's blood from other people on the on the bed uh, from previous operations and accidents. Uh, oh. Yeah. Um, when actually when I uh, when I left, they they put my leg in a, a like a brace because it was broken so much on the the femur that uh, I think it was like nearly thirty different places in the femur. Um, so the the brace was really important, but they didn't have money to let me keep the brace, so they had to take it off when they they medically evacuated me. Oh my gosh! Uh, so I remember as soon as they took it off, my leg just flopped it was uh so yeah, did they perform the amputation at that hospital was that the actual amputation was performed there or was that part of where you were transferred to as far as i know it was after i was transferred the first amputation so uh i think they put me in traction um at that that first hospital okay and then i was put in a taxi to get me to delhi um and i think it was just like a a small van kind of taxi uh, I remember lying in the back of that. And again, I, I had uh, gangrene and septicemia by then. Uh, wow. So I was going in and out of consciousness. Um, but I remember bits of that as well. Wow. Um, but yeah, so it was uh, the, the when I got to Delhi, it was like a charity run hospital. So the conditions were so much better. Um, they, uh, it was a, I think it was a Christian hospital or something like that. So they, yeah, much better funded. And uh, yeah, it was much, much better. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about it, given what you went through, given the circumstance that you were in, going to a facility like that, I mean, there, you, you, you have to play with the idea of some kind of divine intervention there. I mean, there's a very mm -hmm. good chance that, I mean, you may have not made it. 
yeah. you know, just given, given the care, the level of care that you were being provided, um, I, I would, I, I can't think that you don't sit back and go, well, that was, that was a kind of a tricky moment right there, you know, that you were strong enough, um, and had your faculties enough to be transferred and then to be able to go through, um, another procedure to essentially say in essence, save your life to a yeah. large degree, you know, yeah. and, um, have you had revisions since your amputation? Has there been a series of surgeries or was it just pretty much what happened in that time? Uh, so the first amputation, uh, they did just around uh, about the ankle, I think. And they, they found that the bone was too infected. So they had to do another one uh, in India. And they were talking about they were going to do a, a third one, but they were going to uh, because they couldn't control the gangrene and septicemia, they were going to take the leg uh, right up at the hip because of all the breaks that there were. They, mm. were. they thought the best thing would be to amputate. So because my arm was also broken so many places, they were going to take my arm uh, to, to the elbow and they were going to take the three fingers from my right hand. So I would just have my, my thumb and my, my uh, finger here. Yeah. Uh, so... If I hadn't left the day I did from Delhi, they would have done that that operation. So uh, I was very aware of like how lucky I was and how much more difficult my life would have been to to live if that had happened. And every time they did an amputation, they had to ask my permission. But every time they also said, "If we don't do this, you're probably going to die." And it was such an easy decision to make. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think all the time I was very aware that I was I was lucky. And also that my friends were there to involve the embassy uh, and get me basically uh, back home. Uh, and they did one final amputation when I got back to the UK, uh, so below the knee. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think after one week, they managed to get rid of the, the gangrene and the septicemia and everything was kind of under control again. What an in incredible medical journey, you know, when I, when I think about your story. Um, you know, so many of the odds were against you. And to see you now is is just, you know, it's so inspiring. Um, we're actually going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about uh, what Hilton um, consequently did after his amputation, uh, engaging a number of different things, high-level things, and then certainly what the future is um, on the horizon for him as well. Uh, we're going to do a segment we call Amps You Should Know, and we're going to be right back. Don't go away. On this episode of Amps You Should Know, I'd like to introduce everyone to Mac Nong. Mac is an LAK since birth. He's 29 years old. Mac is the program manager for Great Lakes Adaptive Sports Association. He oversees a range of sports activities for the disabled. I actually uh, met Mac through a mutual friend, Robert Anthony, and uh, we had just a, a fantastic conversation. And I so appreciate uh, what Mac does with his life, dedicating himself to uh, individuals with disabilities and exposing them um, to different activities, sports activities, things that allow them to uh, live active lives and be their best selves. 
Uh, Mac is also a professional wheelchair basketball player. He represented the USA amputee uh, soccer team. And um, he also is um, participating in wheelchair football. Uh, you know, Mac is one of those rare individuals that is just um, so inspiring because it would seem to me that his life mission is just to lift up others. Um, I so appreciate that in him, uh, especially given that he has um, been an amputee his entire life. He represents a very, very special part of the amputee community in terms of wisdom, in terms of guidance. Um, I can't speak, um, you know, uh, highly enough about Mac and his mission statement as a human being. Uh, one of the um, causes or I should say one of the um, major things that he has put his efforts behind is he is one of the founders of the Fighting Illini Legacy Wheelchair Basketball Scholarship. So um, he just continues to give and give, and um, certainly at his young age has done uh, so much for this community, and I'm so excited to see uh, what he does in the future. Uh, Mac Nong is definitely an amp you should know. Hey everyone, we are back with Hilton Jones, left below the knee amputee, adaptive athlete, all around fantastic person. I'm so happy to have him here today. We were talking about his medical journey before we took our break, and I want to get into some of the activities that you engaged, Hilton that I consider to be somewhat transformative in your journey. Um, we all have something that pushes us or is kind of like the game changer that gets us into like a new space as an amputee. Um, can you talk a little bit about what scuba diving uh, sort of represented for you? Because it, it would appear to me that of the many things that you've done, that that was something that kind of gave you that that motivation or that momentum to sort of find your amputee space let's call mm. it um can you talk about that a little bit yeah of course um yeah it was an accident uh that i fell into scuba diving my my friends were uh wanting to do their open water course while they were in thailand and uh i said okay i'll sit on the beach and i'll wait for you to come back and then we'll we'll talk about how it went uh, the instructor said, yeah, but I've never taught anyone with one leg before. So uh, if you want to, we can kind of experiment together and see how it works. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll give you a discount on the course. So I was uh, I was really nervous, but uh, of course I, I had to do it. Um, so I did it with the, the one fin and um, it was fine. I mean, a little a little bit of assistance getting in and out of the water. But uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it was it was no problem. Uh, in fact, you can. You can gear up, you can put all the, the tank and the BCD and everything on in the water so that, yeah, it's very, very easy. Um, yeah. So, And isn't there something really liberating about being in water in terms of the weightless aspect of exactly. it? Exactly, yeah. Because the time that I've been in a pool since being, you know, becoming an amputee, mm -hmm. and I, you know, obviously there's all the gear with scuba diving. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a technical discipline. But any time that I've just you know, gotten in a pool as an amputee, I think, man, this is really nice. Yeah. Like I, I, I can do this and it's so effortless and 
it's just very, very freeing because, you know, someone will say to me, well, you know, what's an ac activity that I can mm -hmm. do? And I'll say, go swimming. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I think almost scuba diving is even better um, because yeah, the bet. whole point <laughs> is to get neutrally buoyant in the water, which kind of feels like being in space, like how you would imagine it to be uh, being in space. So you're completely weightless. You can stay there for as sure. long as you want. And all around you is everything um, like fish and coral and everything, amazing colors. And it's uh, completely overwhelming, like the first time you go down. And I became so addicted to, to being underwater. And uh, yeah, it yeah. lasted a very long time, that, that addiction. It was, uh, yeah. Now, didn't that, didn't that spin into a photography piece for you? Exactly. So uh, it started off as, uh, as like uh, open water advanced. And then I decided I wanted to become a rescue diver. So then um, I needed a, a prosthesis that I could uh, basically adjust the foot. So I had like a, like a key uh, that I could turn mm. and I could lock the foot in one position or the other position, put a fin on it. So uh, as a rescue diver, you need to be able to carry someone up the ladder. Uh, if there's an accident on the on the dive boat, for example, or walk them up the the beach. So uh, so then I had a diving leg, and then I thought, well, I've got a diving leg, so maybe I should uh, continue the journey. And so then it becomes a dive master after rescue, and then a scuba diving instructor after that. And one of the specialties is doing uh, underwater video. So I, I I loved that because I loved all the visuals of being underwater anyway. Uh, so then I wanted to be able to share that with other people. So. The whole thing was very organic, the, the, the journey. But then I realized how much people really wanted to have the video of them learning to dive because it only happens once. So then that became a, a business in itself. And uh, we would film people uh, learning to dive on the dive boat um, and underwater and with the, the turtles and the sharks and that sort of thing. We'd film them, we'd edit the, the thing on the, the dive boat on the way back, and we'd actually show it on the dive boat as well. And people would uh, say, if they wanted a DVD, they'd just order it from us and we would deliver it to their hotels afterwards. So yeah, that was a, it was a fun little, a uh, little thing that we did. It's awesome. I mean, it's, 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 it's so cool. And I would think, um, the reactions that you would get, you know, as a, a diver and also as, you know, an amputee and you're, you're sort of responsible for, you know, creating the, this, this fantastic memory, you know, for, for someone who's, who's taking a tour, um, I, you know, and I can only look at it through my own lens, you know, when I had, you know, 10 toes is if I were to go on a trip and I'm like, you know, this guy is like, he's an amputee diver. Like, this is the coolest thing, mm. you know, like I've ever seen. I would think some of those reactions would have been, really neat like for you actually yeah i mean was was some of that engagement like like really fun for you yeah definitely i mean we called the the underwater video company pirate videos because uh yeah the pirate thing i have a little earring and uh yeah the wooden leg nearly <laughs> so that was a little fun thing to play with but every right. every day on the boat someone would be asking oh how did you lose your leg how did this happen and some days you'd tell the truth some days you'd make a little story <laughs> Uh, I told, <laughs> well, there are sharks out here. Exactly. You know? <laughs> I, so I told this one girl, I said, yeah, it was, uh, uh, we were doing a dive. I was looking at a seahorse and, um, suddenly like these sharks swarmed around my leg and they started attacking. And, uh, she said, 
but like, why didn't you just go straight up to the top? And I said, well, it was a really nice seahorse. And she believed me. So she said, but how long did it take to lose the leg? 20, 30 minutes. But I got good footage. Right. So, yeah, she was like, okay, and walked away after that, I think. But uh, right, right. you could always have something fun you could play with, definitely. And I, I, I agree with you in terms of the playfulness aspect. Um, I am, you know, I, I am down for, you know, one-legged jokes all day. Mm. And I, I think that when you sort of present yourself in that way, it definitely brings the temperature down in the room, so to speak, mm. because so many people that I interact with who are, you know, um, able-bodied, they are very cautious um, about talking, you know, about what being an amputee is like, you know, or, you know, what is what is your prosthesis? What are you wearing? How does that work? How does that feel? And then, of course, like you mentioned, what happened? You know, what happened to you? How, how did you end up this way? And it's funny because there's such an interesting spectrum of interactions that go on, whether it's the, someone assumes that it's just this horrible thing mm -hmm. and you're living a horrible life, mm -hmm. right? And we have to kind of lift them up out of that and let them know, hey, I'm okay. Everything's good. Mm -hmm. Like I have a great life. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's great. I'm a really happy guy. And then there are just on the other end of that spectrum is just this sort of childlike fascination. Mm -hmm. And and they are just immediately inspired by who you are or what you're doing. And they have this really kind of cool curiosity in, you know, how do you function and, you know, what do you do for a living? And, and all of that I find is a really unique part of our experience yeah. as amputees because there's that that really interesting sort of engagement and interaction we have with people. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I enjoy that. And I, I find that to be an interesting part of the journey. Um, going from scuba and doing all of those things and getting into some of the more competitive sort of spaces, um, how did that sort of evolve for you from let's say a physical standpoint, but then also understanding how am I going to, you know, when you look at something like CrossFit, for example, mm. which you're very adept, um, getting to that level, um, where, where did your journey take you after scuba and how did some of those things gain momentum for you in your, in your amputee journey? Okay. Um, so when, when I was living in Thailand, I had to pay for repairs for my leg uh, myself. I, I, there was no kind of social um, uh, way of, of dealing with that. So when I, basically what I did, the, the best way I could deal with it was I had the, the cheapest foot that I could have. Um, and I would get that basically whenever it would, it was wooden in the middle and rubber on the outside. And uh, when it would basically fall apart, I'd order a new one from Bangkok and I'd either fix it myself or there was a motorcycle repair shop around the corner from where I lived. And uh, I'd go there if uh, the bolt had rusted through and it had to be drilled out, then I'd go there and they would fix it for me. Well, what was the the first visit to the motorcycle shop? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what was that like? I mean, you're walking in like, hey, I got 
something I need you to fix? I, I mean, what's the look on their face when you ask them that question? I think it's so, um, I think it's it, one of the best countries to be in for that situation because uh, Thai people love a puzzle. They love to, to help a stranger. That's remarkable. Yeah, that's really interesting. I love that commentary. Go ahead. Uh, and uh, I think they just, they, they found it, they took it on board as something that they would help with and and somehow improve my my ability. So I think they didn't even charge me the first uh, couple of times like for fixing my leg. Wow. Um, and then when actually the whole thing rusted at one point and uh, they couldn't drill out any of the adjustment screws or bolts. So they covered the whole thing in Kevlar. And uh, actually it was the Kevlar that was holding my, my leg together rather than anything else. <laughs> Obviously I couldn't adjust it anymore, but I didn't need to, it was good enough. So, um, so, it's that's amazing. I hear these stories, you know, let's say from lifelong amputees that were amputees as children and technology isn't or wasn't what it is now. Mm-hmm. And some of the stories they tell me about, you know, duct taping feet together yeah. and I mean I mean literally like cobbling together their prosthesis. And I, I certainly, you know, I've only been an amputee for six years. So I, I go, I go into this space of, I am so spoiled because I've never had to deal with that. I mean, the, the most minor squeak or, you know, imbalance or something that I experience, you know, it's like skid marks in the driveway. Like I'm over at my prosthetist, like, you know, what are we doing with this and why does it feel this way? And when I see, you know, amputees online, sort of complaining about, you know, not getting exactly the running blade that they wanted. I'm like, you know, we're pretty lucky that even these things are available to us. Um, Because when I hear your story, you know, you're at the motorcycle Mm. repair shop. I'm like, man, what a journey. But but I mean, what that was definitely the thing was like, uh, I could I could get by but what I did was mm-hmm. I limited how much activity I did because I was so scared about having to to pay for a new break foot, it. break it, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't afford to, uh, I was making enough money to live there, but I wasn't making enough money to go back to the UK and get a new leg made or something like that. So yeah. um, I, I hardly did anything um, apart from the diving that I had to do. And then maybe mo- moped on the way back to my restaurant. I had a restaurant while I was there as well. And uh, right. yeah, so it was... Uh, as little walking as possible. So I was very, very um, unhealthy actually when I was there. But uh, when I left and I moved to Sweden, uh, then I got myself checked up. And um, this is where it becomes a little bit of a complicated story because the real thing was when I got checked up, uh, my blood my blood work came in and the doctor said to me, well, how have you been dealing with uh, hepatitis C? Uh, that yeah, you, have- you, disco- you, you discovered you had hepatitis C, which... Um- kind of sent you on a whole other path and um you were very symptomatic as well weren't you yeah because i i knew something was wrong i i was getting really cold underwater and it was really warm water there was no reason that, like for me to be cold mm. uh like so really shivering underwater and if i look back at photos of myself my skin was a little bit yellow as well uh even yeah. the white of my eyes was a little bit yellow so i mean the, wow. there were warning signs but i didn't think about it at all because i didn't know um but they they looked at the genotype and they said it was from uh, probably from South Asia, um, and we worked out that it's almost a hundred percent the blood transfusion that they gave me when I lost my leg. So I yeah. yeah, it'd been twenty years or something of uh, of 
well, no, sorry, at that point, probably 15 years of living with the hepatitis C, but not knowing it. So I was drinking, sure. I was doing a very unhealthy lifestyle um, and then doing a lot of damage to my, my liver. So yeah, I was going to say, cause that's really the, the danger zone with, with any form of hepatitis is liver damage. Exactly. So, uh, the doctor said, well, either you stop drinking now, or you've probably only got about two years to live. And, uh, that was the sobering moment. And so, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, another point in my life where I was like, okay, I have to change something very big now. And, yeah. uh, so it was coming to Sweden having this news from the doctor and then also having the, the healthcare opportunities in Sweden to, to get a much better leg than this uh, stupid wooden Kevlar leg that I had at the time. Uh, but you went through a lot of struggle to get, get your arms around the hep C, didn't you? Wasn't there a number of different uh, procedures that you went through exactly. in order to try to try to get rid of this? you know, to, to get it under control or get rid of it. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that too. Cause I, I, I think that was kind of a big deal for you. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the first treatment was, uh, took one year. Uh, and that was the, I think it was peg interferon and, uh, ribavirin, I think it was called, uh, ribavirin. And the, the combination of the two had some really strong side effects and not everyone got them, but most people had like flu-like symptoms, but this was for like one year. So it was quite tough anyway, but uh, it also yeah. gave a lot of people depression, uh, suicidal thoughts. And uh, for me, also a, a, a complete uh, lack of short-term memory. I just find myself somewhere and have no idea how I got there, how long I'd been there. Oh, man. And uh, I, I used to have to put notes around the house uh, just to remind myself that I'm taking a treatment. That's why I feel this way. It's not permanent. As soon as I stop taking the medication, I'll be fine. But uh, yeah. yeah, it was very, very tough. And uh, luckily, I had the support of my, my girlfriend at the time, now, now my wife. Um, but I mean, it was very, very hard, hard for her as well. Um, sure. So the second, when it, when it didn't work, uh, it was heartbreaking. And then uh, we were like, okay, we're going to do the second treatment. But the doctor said, as long as you guys are sure, because it's taken a toll on your relationship and it takes a toll on everyone's relationships. So like we, we really thought about it very hard, um, but we decided it was worth the risk. Uh, six mm. more months with a different treatment. Uh, and this time they thought they'd got rid of the side effects, but the, unfortunately one of the two drugs uh, that they thought were causing it, they, they got the wrong one. So uh, I still had these, uh, this aggression, but uh, yeah, instead of being towards other people on the second one, it was more towards myself. I was very angry with myself and, um, mm. I had to lock myself in the bathroom if I got too angry. It was uh, it was very difficult. So yeah. then, when that didn't work, uh, there was no other treatments available at the time. So we thought, okay, well that that's it. Then I'm just gonna I'm just gonna have it and see see how it goes. So yeah. then, when the third one came, uh, we were really not sure whether I should even do the treatment. But luckily, that third one did work. It took six months, wow. and uh, yeah. So in total, it was three years of doing that. But, so, so you come out on the other side of this. It it tests your relationship. Hmm. Um, it it you know it tests your daily life, your ability to feel uh, well, to feel like you're on an even keel. Hmm. You finally, after three rounds, you you put this thing to bed, and I'm I'm imagining suddenly you wake up 
I mean, you come out of this slumber, mm. like clear, focused, determined, almost in a way I would think re rediscovering yourself. Mm. Like this is actually who I am. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not that other person. Like I'm finding myself for the right, you know, right in this moment, I would think that must've been so incredibly liberating yeah. for you to suddenly feel well. Yeah. And then, and then what happens, you know? Exactly. And that was, it, it, and then what happens is how I feel about the rest of my life from that point, actually, the, this, this feeling that uh, I have so much more energy than I ever had before. And I, I don't know uh, where it's going to end. And yeah, this, this feeling of everything being kind of limitless, the possibilities are limitless. I remember saying at my, my job, I said to my boss, I said, look, I, I need something more to do because I, I don't know what to do with all this energy I have. And uh, so it, it became, it became the, I'd started doing training because it was a good way of dealing with uh, the side effects from the treatments. But it was very much on your own, headphones on, uh, really angry music on, just to, <laughs> just to get rid of some of that anger and frustration. But, sure. but then I realized that I wanted to do something that was like maybe with other people because um, I was finally not this angry person anymore and I could remember things again, which was good. But uh, yeah, so then I started doing these boot camps and um, I thought, what's the most stupid thing I can do? And I thought, okay, uh, an obstacle course race. Uh, there's one called uh, Tough Viking in Sweden. Tough Viking. And I yep. thought the name, the name just made me think, okay, I have to do that. So then sure. uh, I started training towards that, talked to people who'd done it. Um, quite a few of the amputees that I talked to on Instagram I was asking them, how do you climb a, a rope, for example? That's a really tricky one if you've never tried to do it before. And I mean, trying to find someone around where I live here who is also an amputee that can climb rope, that's never going to happen. So that's right. when Instagram just was invaluable. Um, yep. So And also amazing how kind people are with giving advice, really taking a lot of time out of their, their day to explain, take pictures and that sort of thing. Uh, it, yeah, it was amazing what people did. So I learned how to climb a rope, for example, from this one guy uh, in yeah in Denmark. And uh, I just went and tried it out on my own. And then I started doing some of the other things that I realized that I was missing from my training. So then I started doing the kickboxing uh, just to do a bit of cardio. But then I thought also it was uh, another very stupid thing to do. Like why why would I do kickboxing? But uh, I just thought it's it's fun to see if I can. And yeah, it was really, really fun. In fact, I brought. So when you were when you were discovering, you know, some of these these new disciplines, the, these higher level activities, how how do you feel like managing your residual limb? Like mm -hmm. what what challenges did you face? I know, you know, very often we'll talk about high functioning people like yourself and all the things that you're doing, but sometimes we don't get into, um, you know, hey Hilton, like. Like, how do you take care of your limb? Like when you're, you know, when you're putting yourself under that much stress, pressure, you know, what's your skincare like? You know, what, you know, what are you doing to stay in those spaces? Because I always, for myself, a lot of getting to do a lot of the things that I'm doing now, it's always been about recovery time, mm -hmm. you know, being able to get out of my prosthesis and give my limb a chance to rest and being able to measure which activities require a little bit more 
or a little bit less rest. Right. Because, and conversely, if I wait too long, then it's almost like my limb doesn't ever want to go back in the prosthesis again, mm -hmm. you know, um, which is bizarre. But, you know, there's always seems to, I'm always trying to find this sort of like secret sauce, this like secret recipe to making it all work. So as far as those particular self-care mm -hmm. kind of points, what would you say to someone that, that looks at your Instagram or looks at your Facebook and says, you know, how do you get to that level? You know, like I, I you know, as far as management of the, of the limb. Um, I think, like you say, you, you need to look after your rest. You need to plan. If you know that it's going to be an activity like doing uh, squatting, squatting, for example, is really tough on the skin on the back of uh, my stump. Uh, the the lie, uh, basically the edge of the prosthesis is always going to rub on those corners because you have the tendons going on either side. And uh, mm -hmm. I get cuts there all the time still. Um, and no matter how much I do them, I, I will still get cuts there every now and again. Uh, so then you have to rest up. So I plan how often I, I'm going to be doing heavy squatting, for example. Um, and I also make sure that the area is clean all the time. So every time I change my leg, because I, I'm lucky enough, I have two that I use. I use one for uh, CrossFit, for example, and then I have an everyday leg. So I swap between the two. I'll use an antiseptic wipe to clean the, the liner and then my leg. And then the other one, as soon as I finish using that one as well, I think uh, that's really, really important. I, I've yeah. uh, learned that from uh, mistakes of not cleaning enough. Uh, and yeah, that, that definitely doesn't work. This skin can really suffer if it doesn't get enough time to breathe, for example. And so much of it, wouldn't you agree? It's like trial and error. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're saying, Hey, you know, I've made mistakes mm. and you know, I've done that too, where you're just constantly kind of molding and shaping the right regimen mm. so that you can engage the things that you enjoy doing and be relatively pain-free and without any kind of major consequence. Um, because, you know, when I talk to someone like yourself, you know, the assumption of the masses is that you just make it look easy. And really when you get, you know, do a deeper dive into it, it, it becomes very obvious that, well, no, actually there's a lot that goes into um, being able to do these activities. Mm -hmm. And if you're not committed to that kind of self-care and that awareness, always focusing on the limb, always focusing on the limb, then you're you're, you're probably going to struggle yeah. to get to a place that you feel like you're making a lot of progress, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because I mean, now, I mean, you're, you're actually doing coaching, correct? Exactly. Exactly. And tell, tell me about all of that. Cause I'm fascinated by that. Um, I think it was just, again, you get to a place where you've been helped so much by so many different people. Like, like you were saying now about, um, looking after the limb and that sort of thing. So many people told me like, okay, this is normal to get this kind of injury uh, at the back of my leg, the same as I was talking about before. Um, if you don't know that, then you just think, okay, this is something bad I've done to myself. I shouldn't do this again. And yeah. you, you back off and you stay away. So that's when the community really jumps in. And I think when you've had that kind of help, then you want to give that help back. And so that's where the coaching definitely came in. Um, uh, I think... Everyone, okay, I'm not going to talk too much about the CrossFit because that's the stereotype, right? But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I fell in love with it. And then when you fall in love that heavy, you want to kind of share and you want to make sure other people have that as well. And it was the perfect thing for me. So yeah, I definitely wanted to give that to other people. 
and all these little tips and things that I have from my own experiences, I want to get a chance to pass that on. Uh, and so, yeah, a little bit through Instagram at the beginning, but then I thought, okay, I have to do the actual course. And so I did yeah. The, 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 yeah, the CrossFit level yeah, one. And, and tell me about the organization that you're with now. Um, I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, what's the name? Um, that make the prosthesis or? No, no. The, who you work with when you do the coaching. Uh-huh. Okay. Know... Yeah, there's a couple of different uh, gyms that I work with. But okay. one, one is the Extreme Fabrican and the other one is uh, Vici Athletics. Yeah, Vici uh, Athletics. That was the one that was it was on the tip of my tongue. It's a good name, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they've been really, really helpful with um, basically giving me the, the shifts that I need. And also one thing that was uh, really extra nice was that they realized that three back-to-back -back, uh, course, like when I'm teaching uh, three one-hour classes, I have mm -hmm. at least half an hour on either side of it uh, to set up and then also uh, to clean up a little bit afterwards. And it was just too long on my leg. It was uh, the amount of walking I was doing was uh, just too much. So they allowed me to reduce the amount of hours that I was doing. Uh, and that was another thing that like was trial and error. I, I didn't know it was going to be a problem. But I found I was doing in those three hours of teaching, I was walking maybe 15,000 steps just in the gym, just walking wow. around to different people. So wow. yeah, it was taking this huge toll, but I didn't feel it because I was enjoying it so much. So yeah, they sure. said, okay, take it down. We'll, we'll swap your shifts around. And they've been really great with that. So yeah, I'm very lucky with them. Yeah. And I mean, if you were going to say, where do I want to be, let's say five years from now, mm. you know, given everything that you've, you've gone through, what you're doing now, you know, as a trainer, um, you know, you're definitely someone that is a major influencer in the amputee space. People are following you. They're drawing inspiration from the, the different activities that you're engaging. You know, where, where do you, where do you see yourself, you know, five years from now? Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm hoping that I'm still competing, uh, as, as an athlete. I really hope so, but I'll be 53 by then. So I'll be, uh, yeah. Are you saying, are you saying that 53 is old? No, no, it's all. Because uh, you're talking ages. to a 53 year old right now. <laughs> but, How dare uh, you? <laughs> I'm not sure whether I, I will still be able to compete. I think with, especially with CrossFit, you have a, a window where you should be competing uh, because mm -hmm. you're putting your body under not normal amounts of strain. So there's a difference between like, um, yeah, competition CrossFit and everyday CrossFit. Everyday CrossFit is good for you and it will, uh, you can do that forever and that will make your, your everything better in your life. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's me, the, the CrossFit advertiser. But, well, uh, it's a lifestyle, don't yeah, you say? Definitely. It helps it's you just physically. Your, it's your and, lifestyle. Yeah. But maybe yeah. when you become competitive, then you're pushing yourself to um, areas that you shouldn't be doing for very long. Uh, so maybe you should compete for a few years or five years or some of the cross, CrossFit athletes do 10 years. But uh, right. yeah, you should, there's definitely a window where you should be a little bit careful. And for a lot of athletes, they, they will uh, retire at 30. So yeah, I definitely one of the, the older, older ones. But at the same time, there are age groups where like it starts at 50, well, it starts at 55, 60, 65, 70. Sure. So there's, there's no upper range on that one. But I've already started. So uh, my, my time is ticking a little bit, I think. So yeah. When, when, did, the, when did the handstand become your thing? 
uh, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, there was uh, there was definitely one point where I, I uh, thought it was uh, yeah so silly to to to, to do. Um, when you have all the kind of like the macho stuff that I was trying to do, and it's like okay, after the kickboxing and the the yeah the weightlifting, I'll go and do handstands for an hour, and uh, right. people would laugh at me a lot. But I think that uh, yeah, that's it's just the balance and everything. It's uh, it, it's very very important, and being able to have that core stability to be able to do the handstand, uh, it's it's very very good for you when you're the other way around as well when you're walking on your feet as well. Um, yeah, they, yep. it's a trade off definitely. So no, and, and a lot of people don't realize that the handstand is can very much be a fitness goal, mm -hmm. you know, because it requires a lot of strength. Obviously, it requires a lot of balance. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a lot to it. And certainly, you know, we we sort of joke around because you say, oh, it's like a silly thing. To to me, when I see those images, there's sort of this sort of this uh glow, you know, this light that comes from you in that you're engaging your life. And you're you're living well as an amputee, and that to me is so much a part of what we're trying to do today. What we're trying to do in terms of getting out these stories, you know, people that can provide the kind of inspiration, the kind of wisdom that the community needs right now. You know, my mission is very much to normalize what the amputee lifestyle is, mm. to remove a lot of stigma from what we go through and for people to see us as just incredibly powerful and um, to give us all the same opportunities that everyone else has, you know, cause there's, there's really nothing um, that holds us back. I mean, you're, you're a very, um, how I would describe like a mild mannered kind of person, you know, you don't have this like kind of like crazy intensity about you. Um, but I see this in very much in your social media and so much of following you, this very, very quiet strength about you. And I really appreciate that. It's not overt in that, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's more like, hey, man, I'm just doing my thing. This is what I do, you know, and this is how I perform. This is what I bring to this community. And yes, I'm proud of it. Mm. And, you know, this is just who I am. This is just this is just my life path. And I so appreciate that. I so appreciate you being here today, taking the time and again, hanging in there and um, you know, uh communicating with me so well. Uh it it's it's so appreciated. I can't even tell you how how much independent research I have to do on guests and for you to engage me in the way you have, I think speaks to just um how kind and thoughtful you are. And I so appreciate that. Would you like to say anything to our community in closing today? Uh, just, um, I guess the, the thing is like, never be afraid to reach out to other people in the community because sometimes you feel like when you really need help, uh, that you're almost too ashamed to ask or you imagine that other people are more busy than they are. Um, and even the busiest people have been through the same thing that you've, you're going through now. And one of the best things that we can do once it becomes easier and once we have these experiences to be able to share them uh, back. And so I think nearly every amputee that I know and I talk to, they've got all the time in the world to, to help in any way that they can. So never be afraid to reach out, I think. Yeah, what a, what a great sentiment. Hey, everyone, just reach out. 
there are people like myself, there are people like Hilton. We are here to help. We will answer your messages. We care, you know, and uh, again, thank you, Hilton Jones. Follow him, like him, share him. He is the man. I am Rick Bonkowski. This is the Amped Up to 11 podcast. That's going to wrap it up for us. I want to wish everyone health and happiness, and we will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.